So good to be with you. Uh, I just uh, share uh, so many of the sentiments uh, Bert expressed towards me, towards him. I've been looking forward to this uh, for months now, uh, and one of the highlights for me is I'll get to, I knew I'd get to have dinner with Bert and pick his brain and learn lots about the ministry here. And uh, it has been such a joy over the last 20 years to get to be back here uh, twice at Berea and now at Crawford Avenue and to see the growth of the work of God in this church and in this place. Just very, very encouraging. And what a delight to sing with you this morning. Uh, John, thank you for picking all the perfect songs to go with all of my, uh, my topic. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm always wrestling each week with how do I summarize the context before my passage. And from now on, I will uh, hire John Ross to uh, summarize what comes before my passage. Who knew that you could have the guy from Commuter Bible do that for you? What a gift. Um, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. John, I just had a bunch of nice things about you. So thanks for coming back in. The Lord spared you from them. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5. And verse 10, 11, and 12, if we could reread those three verses, I think it would serve us as we head into our time in God's Word. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's Word. Father, we come and ask you that you would please take the very same word that created the universe, the very same Word that formed us in our mother's womb, the very same Word that caused those who believe here to be born again. Lord, would You use this Word to create and sustain and move and make us marvel at Jesus. We pray that You do this of Your abundant mercy and in spite of our sin. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by telling you three stories of persecution. And each gets a little closer to home. Uh, the first is about an Afghani family whom I love. They're members of our church, have officiated at the wedding of two of their daughters, and uh, watched two of their sons get baptized, one of them just a couple weeks ago. And the reason this family is in America is because about 15 years ago, the father, we'll call him a boss, met a Christian missionary in Kabul, and Abbas the father started reading the Bible with this missionary. Abbas, who was a Muslim, was confronted by his Muslim brothers who did not like this at all, that he was reading the Bible with a missionary, and they gave Abbas an ultimatum. Stop reading the Bible or leave. So Abbas picked up his wife and six of his kids. He had to leave one behind who was already married and fled Afghanistan, first to India, where they spent 10 years with no legal status, no opportunity for job or education, and then to America and Louisville, where their family has begun to prosper after persecution. Second story is about my wife's cousin in Canada. 
Uh, for 25 years or so, he was a public school teacher. As a public school teacher, he taught faithfully and over the years tried to share the gospel with his students where he could. Most recently, out of Christian conviction, he spoke to a transgender student and tried to discourage them from pursuing a new gender identity. For this, he was fired because of his abusive treatment of the student. Now, he's no longer teaching for a living, which is what he trained for and has decades of experience in. But now he's been working as a bus and shuttle driver for various companies, launching his teen sons into adulthood from a very different place than he had planned. Third story involves a large 3,000-kid Christian school in Louisville, Kentucky, where I pastor. It's actually four schools. It's actually its own school system. It's a school where a number of members of our church teach and coach and direct choir. Uh, This school gave their middle school students an assignment earlier this year to write a letter to a friend who struggles with homosexuality and seek to persuade that friend of the goodness of God's design. Students were told they would get, you know, a B or a C if they used biblical reasoning. They'd get an A or an A plus if they were winsome and persuasive and kind and compelling. I read the assignment myself. Any middle school kid at Emmanuel who could do that, I would just, it would be hats off from me if they could do that well. It was a great assignment. Well, one student took the assignment home to their father. Father wasn't impressed. He passed it on to a gay friend of the family. The gay friend of the family posted it to Twitter. And pretty soon the story was in our local paper and on the nightly news on multiple stations. And people in our community were calling on the Christian school to apologize, to stop the hate, basically to abandon their Christian convictions. If we had more time, I could tell you of an eye doctor who sold his business because so many of the kids he was seeing were transitioning their gender and he feared his convictional response to their transitioning would jeopardize his business. Or maybe I could tell you of two medical students, second-year medical students, the U of L right now have some fear they may not be able to graduate from med school because their convictions on abortion and gender reassignment surgery. They have professors who share their concerns, but those professors are isolated and afraid to speak. In many seasons of church history, it's been the preachers and the pastors who faced the tip of the spear when it comes to persecution. In our day and time, persecution is far more likely to come from the HR department at work than from the police headquarters downtown. Wherever it comes from, persecution is a reality all Christians will face. Paul tells us all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. And after a detailed study of the word all, I can tell you conclusively that it means all. It's also a reality that will lead many to abandon Jesus. You remember the parable of the soil tells us that, quote, when tribulations and persecutions arise because of the word, some will fall away. Because of this reality, I feel burdened that the people of God be equipped to respond to persecution, to support each other in 
those persecutions, and not only to survive persecutions, but to thrive in them with the joy that Jesus desires His persecuted people to have in the midst of their trials. Our passage this morning deals head-on with the reality of persecution. And Jesus' goal in these verses is not simply to uh, discuss persecution, but to transform our view of persecution. He wants to change our minds about how we see persecution. He wants to transform our hearts literally about how we feel about persecution. Above all, He wants us to see that for the Christian... Persecution is a mark of God's blessing on our lives. It's an opportunity for great rejoicing and gladness, even in the midst of great pain. That really is why these Beatitudes are here. I wish I had a couple of Sundays to go through the Beatitudes uh, with you. But essentially what the Beatitudes communicate to us, and I love this because it just shows us what a sympathetic preacher Jesus was, is the Beatitudes communicate that the Christian life feels miserable, but it's really good. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Nobody wants to be poor in spirit. Nobody wants to feel like they haven't got gas in the tank. No one wants to feel like they haven't got what it takes. We want to dig down deep and find that we indeed indeed do have what it takes to meet the next obstacle. But when the Holy Spirit moves into a Christian's life, The first thing he takes aim at is exposing that they don't have what it takes to overcome even a single sin. We're poor in spirit. And Jesus comes along and says, I know that feels rough. It's actually blessed. And he does the same thing with mourning. How many times have Christians felt bad that they mourn so much over sin? It seems like I came to Jesus, got some joy, and they began to mourn over my sin. And this seems bad, especially when everyone in the world around us is telling us how happy they are. And so Jesus to come along and remind us, no, this is actually a blessed condition to be in, to be mourning. It means God's at work in your life. It means that he's shown you the true weight of your sin against God. You're mourning. And so the Beatitudes proceed like this. You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It feels like you don't have what you want. In fact, that's the case. You don't have the righteousness you want. You you don't see the righteousness you desire in the world or in your soul. And so Jesus comes along and says, I need you to know something. This is blessed. This is blessed. This is under the smile of God. This is good where you are. This is saved. This is on your way to inheriting the kingdom of heaven. This means you're going to receive mercy. This means that you will be satisfied. And Jesus does the same thing here with persecutions. He, in fact, ends his Beatitudes with the response the world will have to us. He starts with the response that's happening in our souls to God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He ends with the response God, sorry, the world will have to us. And of course, nothing about persecution feels blessed in an earthly way. It's only by faith and faith in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that we come to see how it is that persecution can be blessed. So Jesus is caring for his sheep. He's caring for his people. He's making sure they have what they need in their souls to follow him who died on a cross and was scourged and mocked. He's making sure that we have 
the resources to face persecution that will always come to us if we follow Him. Now, the passage tackles persecution from three angles. In these verses, and if you're looking for points, if you're a note taker, here it is. In these verses, Jesus deals with the scope of persecution. He deals with the cause of persecution. And finally, the joys of persecution. Let's begin by looking at the scope of persecution. Many of us have a very narrow view of persecution. We hear about Christians being tortured in North Korean jail cells and we think, persecution. But the words of Jesus here in Matthew 5 speak to these heinous examples of persecution, but they don't just speak to them, they expand them. They, they, they move out our definition of persecution. Jesus' definition of persecution is broader than one you're going to get from sociology or one you're going to get from a religious watchdog group. And of course, Jesus gets the last word on everything, right? We take his definitions. And I hope to show you why it's so profitable to see persecution the way Jesus does. He broadens the definition of persecution. Notice in verse 10, first he just states persecution broadly. Blessed are those who are persecuted. But then when he goes to fill out what this means, he actually doesn't turn to physical pain or imprisonment. He says, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you. They, they speak ill against you. They don't speak kind words against you. This word reviling in Matthew 5 is the same word translated as insults in 1 Peter 4. There are many Christians who, if you ask them, have you been persecuted? And they picture a jail cell, will say no. If you ask them, have you ever been insulted for being a Christian? Well, all of a sudden, the number of people who can identify and need to own these verses radically increases. Being verbally insulted for following Jesus is true persecution. Jesus tells us later in the verse that false accusations are true persecution. Do you see that in verse 11? He says, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In the parallel passage of the Beatitudes that we find in Luke's Gospel, we read, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. I have a friend back in Louisville who this last year was not invited to a derby party. Now there's few fates worse in Louisville, Kentucky uh, than not being invited to a derby party. And it was simply because of her clear commitment to Jesus Christ that she had made public that her friends decided they didn't want her in that kind of environment. It is not the height of spirituality to say, well, that's not North Korea. It's actually better to say that falls under what our Lord calls persecution. Because when you make persecution just a tiny subset, the most extreme is the only thing that's real, then you cut yourself off from all 
Jesus' sympathy and all of Jesus' commands to the place where he actually is leading you. Have you ever been hated following Christ? Have you ever been excluded, not invited out by family or friends, co-workers, or the broader culture? This is real persecution. Are you harmed, imprisoned, forced out of your homeland by family or friends, co-workers, or by the broader culture? Again, this, according to Jesus Christ, and he gets to define it, is persecution. Now, why is it so important that we understand the scope of persecution? Because if we do not label persecution as broadly as Jesus does, we will not apply the comforts to the persecuted as broadly as Jesus does. If we lose our job taking a stand for Jesus, and then of false humility we say, that's not real persecution, then we will not see the call to rejoice and be glad as applying directly to us. We will not see the promises that we will have a great reward and be numbered among the prophets as applying to us. We must understand that everything from being hated to being hunted is true persecution, and all Christians, whether they are slandered or slaughtered, are called to rejoice and be glad in persecution. On top of this, if our view of Christian persecution is narrow, too narrow, limited just to those who are physically hurt, it will undermine our assurance of salvation. The tender conscience who reads, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution, and then says, well, I haven't. Surely I must be doing something wrong. Surely I must not be a real believer who would undoubtedly have this experience that Paul tells Timothy all Christians have. But the problem there, dear believer, is not necessarily that you aren't being faithful but that your view of persecution is too narrow. And you haven't understood that the hardships maybe you've faced from friends or family in trusting Christ, these are viewed by him as real persecutions, as real suffering for him. And they are where he wants to minister his real comforts to you. On top of that, if our view of, Christ, of persecution is too narrow, we might not prepare adequately for or overcome what we might call average temptations. You know, there's that perpetual question that goes around Christian youth groups. Would you be willing to die for Jesus? If someone put a gun to your head and asked you if you're, you would die for Jesus, would you? And of course, you're going to think about it. Oh, okay, I think I could do that. Or, or no, I couldn't. But very few of us will be in that particular situation. And if that's the only place our mind goes when we think about persecution, we may not be ready for much more mundane challenges that will come to our faith. If we think of persecution as only happening when uh, we are threatened with jail time or death, then we may not notice when a temptation to avoid persecution has come upon us. And I said this before, but I'll say it again. It's far more likely for us in America at this point the persecution will come in social situations or from the HR department at work as our values collide with the worldly values of our day. We have to be ready to face that. Beloved, many of us will face persecutions in our businesses, our factories, our workplaces of all kinds. 
James Montgomery Boyce tells of a time a man came to the great church father, Tertullian, in the first centuries of the church. And the man's business interests, Boyce tells us, had been conflicting with his loyalty to Jesus Christ. The businessman told Tertullian of the problem. He ended by saying, what can I do? I must live. Must you? Asked Tertullian. Tertullian understood what we need to understand in our day, that persecution difficulties may come if our government becomes tyrannical, but difficulties may come in the course of the ordinary business on which our livelihoods depend. And beloved, in those situations, we must be crystal clear. The core commitment of the Christian soul is not to live but to put Jesus on display in our lives, whether that's done in life or death. Whether it's done in abounding or being abused. Whether it's done with greater opportunity or more confining circumstances. How important is it that we understand the scope of persecution as clearly as Jesus did? Second, let's notice the cause of persecution. This is very important. These verses do not speak to all persecuted peoples. Notice that Jesus is very particular about who is being spoken to here. He's speaking to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now you are aware, aren't you, that all people have standards of righteousness. You will not meet a person with no standard of righteousness. But Jesus is not simply saying here that if you are being persecuted for what you think is right, then you are blessed. Not at all. Jesus is not speaking to those who have this or that standard of righteousness. He's speaking to those who are his followers and who define righteousness the same way he does. Do you see that in the text? First he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But then he goes on and he clarifies what he's saying in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's, it's, in, it's in our link to him. You can't simply erect a standard of righteousness, which is what's going on all around us now, and say that if people are not living up to this standard of righteousness, they face flack for it then they're being persecuted and they are blessed. Jesus makes it clear that the blessing he's giving is a blessing to those who are persecuted for their righteous stand with him, for their allegiance to him. And Well, other persecutions should concern us as Christians. We don't want anyone to be persecuted. We don't want Mormons to be persecuted or Hindus to be persecuted or Catholics to be persecuted. We're not for anyone's persecution. But in terms of understanding who is under the smile of God, who's under the blessing of God, who is to receive these precious comforts and be told, yours is the kingdom of God, it's only those who've aligned themselves with Jesus Christ that we're speaking to. He's not saying to Hindus who do not receive the words of the Old Testament prophets, hey, you're being treated the same as the Old Testament prophets, so you should rejoice and be glad because you're being treated just like them. We must keep these promises of the persecuted in the context they are here in the Bible. In fact, we actually have to go a first step further. 
Not all Christians are blessed every time they're persecuted. You can, contrary to some people's belief, be persecuted for being a dumb Christian. Or being persecuted for being a jerk as a Christian. I'm sure you're aware that Christians can be foolish, they can be sinful. Joining a local church is a healthy way to constantly remind yourself of this reality. Eugene Peterson said once, he said, I pastored three churches in the course of my life. I wanted each of them to be the new Jerusalem, but sinners kept showing up and demanding baptism. Christians can be foolish, they can be sinful. And when persecution comes to a Christian because of that foolishness and sin, then their primary reaction should not be, look how blessed I am. God wants me to be glad and to rejoice. That's not the case. If you suffer persecution due to your sin and foolishness, his primary desire is for you to repent of whatever sin and foolishness is bringing the wrath of other people down on your head. Peter addresses this head on when he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. That word meddler actually may very well refer to a someone who's causing unjust political dissent. Someone has got themselves involved in rebellion when they should be involved in submission to the lawful government God has placed over them. Don't suffer for those reasons, says Peter. Don't suffer for those reasons, would say Jesus. Instead, the place we're talking about blessing is when that blessing comes to us as we're seeking to walk in Christ's righteousness and we're explicitly identifying ourselves with Christ's name. That blessing is a participation in the very sufferings of Christ. That blessing is under the smile of God. One more little note before I move on from the second point. Notice that Jesus said we will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do you see that in verse 10? We will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. The persecution will not always come in direct connection to the gospel. Oh, I would love it if the only time we were ever persecuted as Christians was right after we said, he died, and on the third day, he rose again. Wouldn't that clarify everything? But very often, persecution will come as we're identified with Christ and we're simply taking a stand for righteousness. This is important now because the places the world gets offended by our gospel are constantly shifting. When I first got saved, the big offense was that you actually believed in truth, capital T, truth. In a relativistic world where all people believe different things, how can you say that there's one truth and he is the way and the truth and the life? That's not the major offense anymore. The major offense in our day and at our time is the moral commands of the gospel. The moral demands of the gospel, especially as it touches our sexuality, is what sets people off in a heartbeat. And we do not want to abandon Christians who are suffering for righteousness' sake 
because the world hasn't chosen to take offense at the particular spot we were looking for it. We want to recognize that whenever someone is identifying with Jesus, preaching the gospel, and standing for righteousness, they will experience pressure from the world at various places, and the body of Christ should be drawing near to them in those moments to support them and encourage them. Thirdly, and probably most importantly, let's notice the joy of persecution. Jesus calls us to a striking and shocking reaction to persecution. We are called to rejoice. He doesn't call us to grin and bear it. He calls us to rejoice. The word literally means to be in a state of happiness. When the prodigal son returned to his father after his rebellion, the father tells him that it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. And this is the kind of response that Jesus is commending to his people when they face persecution, to rejoice and be glad. Christians pray all the time that we would be like Jesus, and then it happens, and we're so depressed about it. But Jesus says, when you are like me, and the world responds to you like they responded to me, this should bring to you tremendous joy. This should bring to you tremendous weakness. The word here for rejoice is actually the very opposite of the words we get for weeping and lamenting. And then Jesus gives us another word. He says that we're to rejoice and be glad. And this word, according to one dictionary, Greek dictionary means to be exceedingly joyful, exult, be glad, overjoyed. Basically, Jesus says the same thing twice, so we won't miss it. When we are persecuted, whether it is a family member who excludes us or a government that imprisons us or simply someone who gives us the cold shoulder because they hate us, we are to rejoice and be glad. We're to be happy and overjoyed. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament regarding all of our trials, isn't it? We rejoice in our suffering, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Or James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The universal New Testament teaching is that trials in general should be met with rejoicing. And this teaching is applied here directly to one of the greatest trials we will face in the entirety of our Christian life. Persecution, which brings exclusion from a group of friends, from family, ostracism from society at large, maybe a curtailing of business opportunities, imprisonment from the very government charged with defending our freedoms, all of these are meant to cause us to rejoice. If you are far more eager to join in angry political movements to preserve your freedoms, which I'm all for preserving our freedoms. But if we are far more eager to get on that angry political bandwagon than to rejoice, we have missed the central teaching of Jesus Christ. You need to understand that as much as there is a threat from left-leaning political movements to the gospel, there is a threat from right-leaning political movements, and that threat is this. They would have you be consumed with rage and anger and not with joy. 
if we fight with our freedoms. And Paul did. Paul was constantly appealing to the courts, to the courts, to the courts to protect his rights as a Roman citizen. But hardly was he trying to drink liberal tears. He was aiming to rejoice and be glad in all of those circumstances and to appeal for the rights he had as a Roman citizen so he could keep preaching this gospel he loved. That's the key. That's the core. And this uh, rejoicing in persecution, we need to realize this is not some pie-in-the-sky ideal. The New Testament church lived this way. You remember the first Christians, the first time they were beaten? What happened? They said, whoa, that's a neat abstract theological truth. No. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They're looking at each other going, we, we actually did it. We're like following Jesus and the, re- the reaction we're getting is like what they gave to him. We're in. The kingdom of heaven is ours. They considered it a badge of honor to have suffered dishonor. They considered it a cause of rejoicing to have been beaten. Our current generation would mark a beating as a source of life-defining trauma so deep that it would result in spiritual injury so injurious that it could never be overcome. Not the New Testament church. They left suffering singing. Paul and Silas show us another example of this. They're beaten, they're put in the inner prison, they're placed in stocks, and what do they do? They sing hymns. Do you know that what you're doing every Sunday when you gather and sing these faithful hymns you've been singing is you're stockpiling the tunes that will be in your soul for moments like that? We read the promises of the Old Testament that God will turn our mourning into dancing. And we forget that that dancing may happen amidst great pain and even persecution. The saints Peter was ministering to were not just told to rejoice in sufferings. They were rejoicing in sufferings. This wasn't a pie-in-the-sky ideal. This was the lived experience of the New Testament church. Peter says to them, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing of his people when suffering persecution and still visiting Christians in jail. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Beloved, these Beatitudes teach us that what Jesus does in our lives often feels bad, but is good. He makes us poor in spirit. No one wants that. We we want to have what it takes to rise to the occasion. And in the same way, he makes us persecuted. No one wants that. But he uses that very moment to assure us this is the mark that the kingdom of heaven is yours. Okay. How will you actually rejoice when persecution comes? Or, if I'm truer to the New Testament, I actually can assume that almost everyone in this room has a place of persecution in their life currently. That there are strained relationships 
That there are difficult situations at work, with family, wherever, where you are experiencing some of the scorn that the world has against Christ in your very own soul. How do you turn that into rejoicing? How do you get to a place where this is not just the source of your major depression, the source of major discouragement, but it's actually a source of rejoicing and being glad in Jesus? Two truths, and they're both here in the text. The first is this. You should rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. This is the missing link in so much evangelical preaching. We're trying to fuel sacrificial Christian lives without being honest that the fuel comes from this reality. Heaven, not earth, is going to be great. I've almost been on this planet 50 years. For those of you who are a little younger, let me tell you, it just gets more disappointing from here. <laughs> but there will come a day when we will be with Jesus. The ambiance of that place Will be the lamb that will be the light that comes from the lamb's face. There'll be a street of gold and no potholes, just glory everywhere as we abide in the presence of the lamb. Our reward being great in heaven, and knowing that the persecuted are those who are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, that's why we can rejoice. We can rejoice because when the world says, you don't belong here, the answer is, that's right. That's exactly right. I belong to another kingdom. I belong to an eternal reality. I belong to a place that doesn't glory in sin, but mourns over sin. I belong to one who doesn't extend wrath and condemnation alone, but makes mercy come out of my soul. I belong to one who is the ultimate peacemaker. I belong to the one who was persecuted for my salvation. And I'm going to be with him. John D. Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men of all times. In today's dollars, Money Magazine says he would be worth $340 billion. It's four times the worth of Bill Gates and a cool $90 billion past Elon Musk. At the time of Rockefeller's death, the general public did not know how much he was worth, and as you can imagine, they were curious. Kent Hughes writes, when John D. Rockefeller died, the public became understandably curious about the size of the famous man's fortune. One reporter determined to find out, secured an appointment with one of Rockefeller's highest aides, and he asked the aide how much Rockefeller left behind. The man answered, he left it all. That's the case with this world's fortunes, big or small. We leave them all behind. And the Christian often responds to that by saying something like, well, you can't take it with you. You know, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses, as one person said. But that's wrong. We will inherit everything. All the riches you've ever seen, maybe all your glimpse was on that old TV show, The Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous. All the glory in this world that you've ever seen will be yours 
For all things are yours in Christ. You are going, blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. I remember uh, working for a very, very, very wealthy person. They, they had animals on the wall that the husband had hunted and shot that I'd never seen before. They'd come from continents I'd never been to before. I was scrubbing their gold faucets in this beautiful house and thinking, man, this is amazing. I was going to seminary and my wife and I were living on next to nothing and I was being exposed to all this glory. And then one day it dawned on me, I inherit it all. Oh, Ryan, don't get consumed with material things. The treasure of heaven will be Jesus. I get it. But he's the one who said there'd be a street paved with gold. He's the one who said that he would build a place for us. And the Lord of glory who makes beautiful things in this creation so we can glorify him will make more beautiful things in the next creation so we can glorify him all the more. And your reward in that creation will be great. If you are persecuted a little or a lot. The second thing that too should encourage us, that should buoy our souls, is that we should rejoice and be glad. I'm in verse 12. For your reward in great, is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution is fundamentally about exclusion. Not getting the promotion you wanted because of your stand for Christ. Not getting the girl you wanted because of your stand for Christ. Not being able to live in the country you wanted to grow old in because of your stand for Christ. Persecution is fundamentally about exclusion. And Jesus comes to us and says, you may be excluded, but I want you to know what team you're on. You are in the same battle and experiencing the same realities that were experienced by all the heroes of our faith. Just like Pharaoh tormented Moses, there are people who will torment you. Just like Jeremiah had those, the Jewish leaders come against him, when religious leaders come against you, you are on their team. Jesus is basically saying, yes, 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 they will excuse you. Let me remind you who you are included with. You are walking in the footsteps of the people we know for sure are on their way to heaven. They did this to the prophets who were before you. They did this to those who marched these ways long before you. Christians, we need to set our sights on heaven. We need to be attracted. Sunday school teachers, when you tell the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jeremiah and Isaiah, what are you doing? You're saying, there's a set of heroes, kids, that you ought to want to be numbered amongst. You're setting up the desires in the soul so that when the world says, you're out, yeah, I might be out with you, but I know who I'm in with. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, or perhaps you've always thought of yourself as a Christian, but you've been seeing that there's a life and a power and an awe that true Christianity puts in the soul, a life and a power and an awe that you don't have, then I'd like to leave you with a thought. 
Perhaps you have been guilty of persecution. I don't imagine many here have imprisoned any Christians. But maybe you've joined in as Christians were slandered, or as serious Christians who take it too far were mocked. Maybe you've had something of that hate in your heart. Years ago, a non-Christian man went golfing with Billy Graham. His friend, his friend found the golfer on the driving range after golfing with Billy Graham, just beating balls into the air, one after another, full of fury. And the, the golfer's friend says, what's wrong? He said, oh, that stupid Billy Graham was just shoving his religion down my throat. And his friend answered, what did he say? Oh, he didn't say anything. Maybe you've been mad at someone who didn't ever say anything. Why was that? It's because of the deep-seated hatred for God that is at the core of every heart that doesn't know Jesus. It's the deep-seated hatred for God I knew before I became a Christian. I listened to music that cursed Christianity. I sneered and mocked. Christian ideas. Right before I got saved, I was planning to write stand-up comedy about how funny Christians were. God got the last laugh. The amazing thing about the Christian gospel is this. That when you rage against God and hate Him, persecute those who love Him, He loves to come and get you. He loves to come and redeem you. The amazing thing about Christianity is the Apostle Paul, who's killing Christians, winds up being lots of Christians' favorite pastors. Can you imagine some of those pastoral visits with Paul? Hey, Paul, remember that time you were trying to kill me? <laughs> this morning, whether you know that hatred a literal or a lot, I want you to know this. Jesus Christ has come to die for sinners. He came to pay the death penalty that sinners deserve. And his death on the cross pays all the death penalty and all the condemnation and all the judgment you deserve. And if you believe in him, he'll forgive you. He will receive you. He will make you part of his kingdom. And he will even include you in all the blessings that come with following him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your power to save, for your ability to comfort your people who are often persecuted, to comfort them with eternal truths. Lord, we pray that you would comfort this people, that you would bring those who don't know you to you, and that you would cause us to rejoice and be glad wherever persecution may come to us for your sake. We pray that you would be glorified.